0: This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell.
1: Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, politics in Venezuela and Bolivia. What's at stake as Venezuela's National Assembly clashes with the president and the courts? And will President Evo Morales win more support... From voters in Bolivia will seek out the answers. But first, Natalie Oniger has our weekly review of news from around Latin America.
2: Pope Francis concluded his trip across Mexico this week, a trip that included bold statements and a public scolding. The Pope preached about the twin themes of rejecting the temptation of the drug trade and asking governments in the region to be more accepting of refugees and migrants. He saved some of his strongest words for a public meeting with Mexico's bishops where he condemned church corruption.
0: I urge you not to underestimate the moral and antisocial challenge which the drug trade represents for Mexican society as a whole as well as for the church. The magnitude of this phenomenon, the complexity of its causes, its immensity, and its scope devours like a cancer. Do not allow yourselves to be corrupted by trivial materialism or by the seductive illusion of underhanded agreements. If you want to fight, do it, but as men do. Say it to each other's faces, and after that, like men of God, pray together.
2: The Pope also directly criticized businessman Donald Trump during the trip, saying that Trump's political positions, especially on immigration, meant he was not a Christian. Trump is running for president in the U.S. and is currently the frontrunner for the Republican nomination. Trump fired back at the Pope, saying he was too liberal and that he had been manipulated by Mexican politicians to make those statements. <laughs> Even as he flew back to Rome, Pope Francis was still thinking about Latin America and making church policy statements regarding the Zika virus and contraception. The pope told reporters during a press conference on his plane that Catholics could use contraception to prevent the spread of Zika. Usually the Catholic Church condemns the use of any form of birth control. The pope said there was a precedent for such exceptions, and he clearly distinguished between contraception and abortion saying there were no exceptions to allow abortion. The Zika virus has been centered in Brazil, but has spread northward and infects every country between Mexico and Brazil, including some parts of the Caribbean. Zika symptoms are usually mild, but it poses a danger for pregnant women because it causes brain damage in newborns. Brazil reports hundreds of cases of newborns with brain damage due to Zika. Mosquitoes spread Zika, and the virus is also a sexually transmitted disease. U.S. President Barack Obama announced this week that he will make a historic trip to Cuba next month. He'll be the first U.S. president to visit the island nation in the past 88 years. Obama said he wants to make the trip to explore better business opportunities between the United States and Cuba, and further improve relations after the country's officially renewed diplomatic ties last year. So far, Obama has been unsuccessful in his calls to get the U.S. Congress to lift the U.S. economic embargo against Cuba. Infamous drug lord Joaquin El Chapo Shorty Guzman has simple wishes these days, now that he's back in prison. He just wants to get a little sleep. One of the lawyers for El Chapo complained this week that prison guards wake up the cartel leader every two hours, and they often move him from cell to cell in the same day. El Chapo complained to his lawyer that Mexican authorities are trying to turn him into a zombie. Mexican authorities caught the leader of the Sinaloa cartel earlier this year, after his second spectacular escape from a maximum security prison last year. Currently, El Chapo is back in the same prison that he escaped from. But prison authorities are trying new security plans to keep him from escaping again. He is fighting extradition to the U.S., where he faces a variety of charges related to running one of the most powerful criminal organizations in the world. For Latin Pulse, I'm Natalie Ottinger.
1: Thanks, Natalie. This week, Venezuela's Supreme Court handed President Nicolás Maduro yet another victory in his clash with the country's newly elected National Assembly. Venezuela's National Assembly is dominated by opposition parties. But this week, the Supreme Court ruled the Assembly could not block Maduro from acquiring special emergency economic powers. Maduro promptly used those powers to raise the price of gasoline for Venezuelans, the first price hike in 17 years. But Venezuela still has perhaps the lowest gasoline prices in the world, despite the price hike. A tank of gas sells for about a dime in U.S. currency or less. We asked Michael McCarthy to help us sort out the politics surrounding the new National Assembly. McCarthy is a researcher at American University's Center for Latin American and Latino Studies. He joined us via Skype from Washington, D.C.
3: The National Assembly, which is a Venezuela's unicameral uh, legislative body, is certainly at the front and the center of political action in the country today. And as you mentioned, uh, you know, there have been plenty of examples of controversy surrounding the National Assembly uh, only after 30 days of it you know, being sworn in on January 5th or just over a little month of action there in the National Assembly. Uh, the main incident that you mentioned or made reference to Uh, was the uh, destitution or or sort of the the Supreme Court ruling that um, four total uh, uh, deputies, federal deputies, uh, could not be seated because there were um, allegations of fraud in the state um, of Amazonas, which is in the uh, southeastern corner of the country on the border with Brazil, um, that there were problems with the elections there. So, therefore, um, theoretically, there should be a new election to seat um, those Congress people. Uh, it's not clear when that date, uh, when that election would be held. Uh, but the opposition, after initially suggesting uh, that it was not going to accept the court's ruling, eventually bowed uh, to the court, uh, accepting the fact that it was better to have uh, a majority of one hundred nine to fifty five rather than one hundred and twelve uh, to to uh, fifty six. And so that's where things stand at the moment. Um, and uh, it still gives the opposition plenty of bully uh, pulpit power in the sense that they can dictate the commission hearings in the National Assembly and try and shape public opinion uh, from the National Assembly floor. And that's what they've been doing for the first month. The, the main issues that have been uh, discussed have to do with an amnesty law, which would actually reach all the way back to 2000. It wouldn't just refer to amnesty for political prisoners, um, that, that um, the political prisoners that were jailed. Uh, after the uh, street demonstrations in 2014, but also going all the way back, like I said, to 2000. So those who are supporting this amnesty law are trying to frame it as a broader attempt at reconciliation in the country. Uh, and then the second issue really has been uh, one of a, a new law uh, regarding uh, giving property titles to owners of government housing. Uh, the Gran uh, Vivienda Venezuela, which was uh, Hugo Chavez's last main social social assistance program, has become a boli- bit of a political football between both sides, as what as the opposition is claiming that beneficiaries don't receive land titles, and so they therefore become dependent on the government, and this creates conditions for clientelism. And the government essentially saying that uh, land and house Land and housing are, are rights, not not pieces of commerce or mercancía, as they're describing it in Spanish. So, um, so this is you know these are the two main issues and two main law, legal issue. Pardon me, uh, legislative issues. And the man of the hour um, in the National Assembly uh, is a, is a an official named Henry Ramos Ayup, Allup, who's the uh, Secretary General of Acción Democrática, which is Venezuela's historical social democratic party a party that uh, was dominant uh, during the uh, previous two-party system of democracy uh, from 1959 to 1998. And he won out over the secretary general of uh, uh, Primero Justicia, first justices party, uh, winning out over a guy named Julio Borges. Uh, and Ramos' arrival to the National Assembly was a bit of a surprise because Primero Justicia uh, won the most number of seats in the National Assembly. Uh, but it 't put together the coalition among opposition political parties for its um, number one to be selected as the president of the National Assembly
1: thanks for that rundown of, of where the assembly stands right now but I wonder if there's a, a more of a macro governmental issue that is is on the table here with disqualifying those National Assembly members from Amazonas the idea that, there is no supermajority. With those votes, there would have been a supermajority for the opposition, and they might have been able to cause more trouble for the Chavista government, for the government of President Nicolás Maduro. And now, without those votes, um, they're in a much more tame position as a legislative body. Or is that not the correct read? No, I mean,
3: I think that is, that, I think that is an important um, change, right? The The reduction of the size of its majority. Uh, within the National Assembly, without a doubt. But actually, there's still a, a question of how to interpret the overall number of seats in the National Assembly. There's an unresolved issue here, which is if you counted 109 out of 167, uh, the official number of seats that there should be, the, the official number of deputies that should exist in the National Assembly, the opposition would have, I believe, a two thirds majority. Uh, but if the count drops four deputies, Um, then then it's not a two-thirds majority. So you see what I'm saying? So there's still an unresolved issue about actually the the kind of majority that the opposition has. So this speaks to the broader questions, um, or in fact, you know, very big problems with the institutional quality of the Venezuelan political system at the moment. Uh, You basically have a Supreme Court that is dictating um, basically sort of how the how the system should be interpreted and, and and run, and there's an important discrepancy here to 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 take into consideration. So the disqualification of these um, federal deputies uh, from the Amazonas state happened in lightning fashion, if you will, um, after the uh, <clears throat> pro-government PSUV party petitioned for them to be disqualified. And if you remember, in 2013. Uh, opposition presidential candidate Enrique Capriles filed a number of petitions. Some were directly from his campaign. Others came from uh, the opposition uh, coalition, uh, questioning uh, the credibility of the presidential election against uh, Nicolas Maduro. And that, uh, the Supreme Court, took a very long time before it even uh, heard the case. And then it basically, and then it interpreted the petition is uh, basically not passing procedural snuff. Um, so it didn't even hear the case. Um, and so on procedural grounds, it wasn't even heard or passed. So you can tell here how politicized the court is, is what I'm trying to point out. Uh, and so it, it's quite clear that the government is using the Supreme Court um, as kind of an institutional appendage of political power to try and um, create major obstacles for the opposition in terms of how it governs. Uh, from the National Assembly. Now, it is important to to take into consideration that there have been some moments of give and take um, since the National Assembly has been sworn in. Uh, President Maduro actually did go to the National Assembly um, to give his State of the Union address. Um, There was some word that he was going to try and give the, the Venezuelan equivalent of the State of the Union from somewhere else. He ended up doing it from the floor of the National Assembly. And after his speech, uh, which the opposition listened to very politely, uh, the president of the National Assembly, the man I mentioned before, Henry Ramos, uh, he stood up um, and the cameras were still rolling for, for it to be a national broadcast that all uh, television stations in the country must show. He stood up and gave a counter speech um, that was very critical um, of, of the government. And the, the, the very sort of idea, the optics of an opposition politician being able to publicly criticize uh, the government and individual members of the government on national live television was itself an important sign of the times in terms of there being this new uh, opposition majority, really, in terms of, 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 you know, vote counts in Venezuela. The opposition, if you sum up the total number of votes, received about 56 percent of the vote on the, in the December 6th elections, and Chavismo received uh, just below 42 percent. Um, so that's a major sea change um, from, you know, the Chavez period. There were moments in which, you know, there, Chavez lost the two thousand seven constitutional reform that he proposed, but by a very very slim margin, and some Chavista uh, gubernatorial candidates lost elections. Um, but but this sort of national vote difference of a. Of a you know, a gap of almost 15 points was, was really quite something, you know. And it reflects the fact that the country is going through a major economic crisis, which is, you know, really eating into um, the qual- eroding the quality of Venezuelans' lives on a daily basis. Um, the country's been in recession for well over a year and a half now. Um, the price of oil has uh, dropped from 2014 to 2015 by over 50%. Uh, inflation is over 200 percent probably for the end of 2015. We don't have the the final data yet, um, and the projections for this year uh, suggest that it could it's likely to get a lot worse this year in terms of the economic realities in the country. Just recently, the government um, issued a ruling that's going to require all uh, malls um, and public shopping centers to only operate between 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. in the afternoon because. Uh, they're going to be. They're going to have to do some uh, rationing of energy um, because of drought and other problems with investments in the hydroelectric sector. And this is going to really change people's daily lives, especially in the cities, um, because as as a result of the major security problems um, that exist in in urban centers, uh, many Venezuelans go to malls effectively to eat, um, to shop, and to just sort of go about in public spaces in, in relatively secure um, environments. Um, it's not really safe to be out on the streets in, in, in Caracas, for example, and in other major cities. And as a result, malls have become sort of safe havens, if you will, in some ways um, for places of commerce and public conversation and just general socializing. And, and now they're only going to be open three to seven Um, You know, this is uh, it's going to be a very unpopular measure, and I don't think that it's going to help the government at all.
1: Let's talk about violence and security. Several weeks ago, there was this incident where several bombs were found near the National Assembly. Uh, Certainly, there has been the news that Caracas has been named the most dangerous city in the world as far as murder rates and those sorts of things. Other countries have higher murder rates as countries, but Caracas is very dangerous. And so um, given what you've just talked about, uh, should we also be worried about the potential for political violence, political demonstration, and its effect on security?
3: Great question, Rick. Thanks. I think that the the security problems... Um, which unfortunately show, show no signs of improvement or of, um, you know, being mitigated by government policies so far, uh, they have yet to um, sort of spill over into political violence. Uh, that, that doesn't mean that there isn't a political impact or there aren't political repercussions to the, to the, to the existence of these um, citizen security problems. But um, it it depends on how you interpret this, right? So you could argue that the existence of, you know, firearms all throughout the country, you know, the idea that that Venezuela as a country is armed to its teeth, is itself uh, a result of the problems with citizen security. That is to say that it's very easy for people to steal arms from the national police um, or from from other security forces. In fact, there was a very embarrassing incident where... um, an, uh, an institution affiliated with the Venezuelan Secret Service basically uh, was broken into by a criminal ban, uh, a criminal group that, that stole some of, the, some of the weapons from this Secret Service agency. Uh, and so, you know, these weapons fall into the wrong hands. Some of those hands are groups that are strictly involved in sort of narco-trafficking and other sorts of illicit commerce and some of those groups are, you know, armed, if you will, colectivos. Some of those are more political in nature, and some of those are essentially, you know, um, armed military thugs of, of the government. Uh, so there, there is some political impact to the citizen security problems, but the political violence itself um, is not a direct, there's not a direct cause and effect relationship, I would say, between um, the citizen security problems and political violence in the country.
1: Thank you so much. Michael McCarthy, Research Fellow at American University's Center for Latin American and Latino Studies. Join us again today on Latin Pulse. Thanks so much, Michael.
3: My pleasure, Rick. Hope to be on again soon.
1: That interview was conducted via Skype from Washington, D.C. Coming up, what's at stake as voters go to the polls in Bolivia? We'll have the details. Stay with us. This planet we call Earth, abundant with new food,
0: new cures, new life. An amazing place. Please don't let it vanish without a trace. Call for your free World Wildlife Fund action kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call -CALL 1-800-CALL-WWF.
1: Welcome back to Latin Pulse. And now we turn to this weekend's constitutional referendum in Bolivia. Voters there will decide if current President Evo Morales can run for a fourth term. Morales is very popular, winning his last election with 61% of the vote. If Morales wins the referendum, he could serve as president for as long as 20 years. He's already Bolivia's longest-serving president. We asked Rob Albro at American University's Center for Latin American and Latino Studies to sort out the importance of the referendum. Albro is the author of Roosters at Midnight, Indigenous Signs and Stigma in Local Bolivian Politics. He joined us via Skype from Washington, D.C.
4: Unlike previous national elections or referendums that that have happened during the period that we might call Abel Morales' time in office, polls are suggesting that this will be a relatively close vote. This is February 21st. If it goes as expected, which is to say that Morales gets what he wants, then he would be given another five-year or the possibility of of another five-year term if he wins that election, which would mean, assuming that he wins, he would have been in office for 20 years, which has, he's already been in office longer than any Bolivian president in the history of the country and is the current longest-serving executive in the entire region. What he should not expect is to get a level of support, electoral support in this referendum, at the levels that he's used to, you know, when he's he's been winning elections at historically with historically high numbers in the fifties and sixty percent. Uh, when previous elections, it was lucky if a can- winning candidate would get in the twenties. Uh, here, uh, polls are split. About forty uh, voting to extend term limits, forty percent saying they there are no votes. And this is splitting, and then a large undecided. This is splitting along familiar lines. Um, you know, you've got the folks who have uh, traditionally supported Morales continue to do so with some defections, um, which is to say, uh, indigenous sector, union, labor sectors, um, teachers, uh, progressives, but. Uh, What you've seen is some defection in the the urban context. One of the keys to the sort of stability of the Morales years has been the widespread cross-sector support that he's received, including in urban spaces. That's less than in the past. But he should still expect to win, if only because he only needs to achieve a plurality of, of the vote, which, you know, doesn't mean that he needs, you know, he's asking for 70%. He's unlikely to get that, but he doesn't need 70%.
1: Yeah, I heard that, that he actually was aiming for 74% for, for whatever symbolic reasons, um, and and that he would be disappointed if he didn't get 74% of the electorate to to approve this. So I'm wondering um, how realistic, given what you've talked about, the the disparate nature of where votes may be coming from, that he might achieve that almost three quarters of the electorate
4: um Supporting him in this referendum. Yeah, I don't think he'll get anywhere close to that. I mean, he'll win. Um, he's not going to get those, you know, astronomically high levels of support. Um, some of the things that are interesting about where support comes from for Morales, you know, he's consistently got support in the broad, sort of rural hinterland of the country, largely because that is uh, kind of the peasant and indigenous um, sort of. Sp- voting strongholds. Uh, He's also got support from, you know, lowland um, agriculturalists. So this might sound surprising because we often group those folks with the people who have been the staunchest, um, the enemies, the most recalcitrant enemies of Morales over the years. But, you know, the the Morales, the Evo boom, you know, the, the Bolivian economy is doing quite well right now has been quite beneficial to those folks. So they'd like stability. They don't want to see that change. Uh, but beyond that, there are, you know, an increasing number of dissident former MAS folks who are no longer
1: on board. And when we mention MAS, we, we need to mention that that is um, President Morales's party.
4: Yeah, that's the movement toward socialism, President Morales' party. And some of the key figures in former administrations, I'm thinking of, for example, Felix Pazzi, who was his first choice for Secretary of Education, and is now a very, very loud anti-Evo figure, um, an Aymara intellectual. You know, and folks like Pazzi have sort of abandoned ship around a variety of other controversies, like the Tipness controversy, was which was the situation a few years ago where the Morales administration attempted to have a highway come through a part of the country which was designated a, a, a green area like a national park but which includes certain rights for indigenous populations living in the park and the administration it's widely perceived that the administration attempted to kind of force this program through uh, despite the lack of support on the part of these local communities that damaged uh, Morales' standing with some corners of the broader and very diverse group of uh, supporters within the, you know, variegated communities of indigenous peoples in Bolivia. But also cost him amongst urban progressives because he seemed there to be something more like a kind of an autocrat and, you know, sort of showing his edge in a way perhaps familiar to, to observers of Latin American politics over the years. As a kind of hyper president, uh, demagogue, uh, more like a you know, an Hugo Chavez type figure, my way or the highway.
1: I, I wonder, um, about what you talk about there the autocratic nature of, of some of the policies and, and how he's viewed by some. Certainly, wildly popular president, um, won election after election there. But you also mentioned Hugo Chavez, who certainly was also criticized as an autocrat. And I'm I'm wondering in the wider context of uh, new left politics in in Latin America, is Abel Morales now really the the leader who comes out in the end being the most successful of the new left, um, uh, better than Chavez, given the Chavez legacy in Venezuela, um, better than than Rafael Correa, who who wants that mantle as the next best than Chavez, um, better than the Kirchners uh, in Argentina? Yeah, it's an
4: interesting question. It all depends, I would say, Rick, on how we define better. So with Morales, we can certainly say a few things that would differentiate his administration, his 10 years so far, from some of these other familiar figures in the what you were calling the new left. For example, Correa uh, similarly sought extension of term limits, failed uh, Ecuadorian legislatures requiring him to sit out a term. Uh, Chavez was, of course, a polarizing figure in a way that Evo is not. And has arguably under, undertaken or initiated, and they're now continuing, um, economic policies that have wrecked that country's economy in ways that Bolivia has not experienced. Bolivia's economy is very good right now. They have not really suffered um, in the same way as Venezuela uh, as a result of the decline in the price of uh, oil. You know, yes, it's true that down the road, the the kind of collapse or the the downward shift in the commodity market is going to affect Bolivia as well but they've been preparing for this in a way i think that maybe some of these other countries have it so i would always i would say that and i've said this uh, over the years it's always a mistake to sort of see all of those figures as part of some coherent thing we might refer to as the moment of the new left if there is that moment it seems like it might be ending Thanks so
1: much. Rob Albro of American University's Center for Latin American and Latino Studies, the author of Roosters at Midnight, Indigenous Signs and Stigma and Local Bolivian Politics. Joining us via Skype from Washington, D.C. on Latin Pulse. Thanks for being our guest. Always fun, Rick. Anytime. Thanks for joining us for Latin Pulse. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or you may write us via email. You can find us at LatinPulse at GMX.com. That's LatinPulse, all one word at gmx.com. If you're looking for earlier editions of Latin Pulse, we're available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Henti Flow. Latin Pulse is also now available through the website Latin America Goes Global. You can find that website at Latin America Goes Global, written as all one org. And as always, you can find us in the Brazilian online game mini mundos to see the latin pulse archives of video programs on latin america you can check out link tv's website that's LinkTV, all one word dot org and then slash latin dash pulse that's link dot org slash latin dash pulse thanks for joining us this week on latin pulse for our entire team associate producer natalie ottinger and technical director Jim Singer, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escúchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of
0: Communications at Webster University, the Global University, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2016 Las Rocas Productions.